This Microphilosophy podcast is the third of a three-part series examining why the debate over trans rights has become so divisive. It is presented with only pauses and verbal fumbles edited out, in order to ensure both sides are fairly represented. If you haven't already listened to parts one and two, I strongly advise that you do so before continuing. My guests are the philosophers Catalina Dutel Novais and Mary Leng. But can we turn, let's move to the policy issues there, because uh, earlier, before we had that little aside, um, Catherine was talking about how, uh, what she felt was a disagreement with you. So, so Mary, I think, let's, let's take this challenge head on, because, I mean, I think a lot of people would say, you know, that when they look at a, a lot of things gender-critical feminists talk about, about the potential problems that would be created. So, you know, let's say, okay, there's, there is a difference between biological sex and gender, but actually, if we were to just say, look, it doesn't matter, let's just all go with gender, Gender-critical feminists are sort of like raising up all these sort of scary scenarios about the awful consequences. Whereas as a matter of fact, you know, where things have been pushed in that direction, generally speaking, it's been successful. So an example might be around all-female colleges or, or you know, sorority houses, everything in the States. All-female spaces like that that have become trans-inclusive and have basically said we, we welcome um, trans women. There's hardly been a wave of problems. And in fact, it seems as well, a lot of people say it's a slightly generational thing, that the, the younger generation just go sh- call and get on with it. So why is it that the gender critical feminists sort of insist that maybe not the, the sky will fall in but the, or, 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 or hell will let loose, but there are going to be real problems with this? Is it, is it an empirically sustainable claim? Let's put it that way. Um, well, on, on the empirical side of things, I think it's very hard to know because it's very hard for people to speak about their discomfort about a space that was previously female not being a female-only space. So um, Holly Lawford-Smith set up a, a website to collect stories anonymously of just pe- people saying, you know, having an opportunity to to say how the move from female-only spaces to, to shared spaces have, have affected them. And there's lots of people saying, this has made me feel uncomfortable, a group that I was previously comfortable going to I mean, is, is not what, what it was. And there's plenty of, of stories. There. And it's, uh, one difficulty with people saying, oh, well, it's, it's happened and it's all fine is it is very, very hard for people to voice discomfort if they if they have discomfort about this uh, th- th- there are of course high profile cases of um, women in prison being sexually assaulted by uh, self-identified trans women prisoners in in, in with them so it's, so it's not all roses but actually I, 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 I my own view is that even if the spaces thing was n- never a problem at all we still have a massive problem with not having the legal recognition of sex so even if it was true that making all spaces, all women's spaces, trans women inclusive, was never a problem and everyone was happy with this, there would still be an issue. So um, Katerina asked, you know, why should sex remain a legally important category as opposed to something that it just matters medically, let's say. And one example I keep coming back to is, so since the 1970s, it's been, we've been able to know the sex of fetuses in the womb, right? We've had scans. And since then, a couple of years ago, that's the latest figures I could find. There's there's a estimate of 23 million girls who weren't born who should have been born due to sex selective abortion. Now, how do we know? How do we discover that there's these missing girls? Well, we discover it because sex is recorded on birth certificates and birth, registration of birth. 
right? So we discover that there's missing girls because sex is a characteristic that gets gets noted down when there are births. And we look at the records of uh, live births in uh, in different countries, and you can see that in about twelve different countries there's a discrepancy, particularly in India and China. And you can track over the years how this has changed and things are getting better in China and they're still not great in India and so on. We know that sex-selective abortion happens, something that's happening because sex matters and because people disvalue female children, right? We know it happens because we legally recognize and record facts about sex. If we don't do that, and it's part of the Yogyakarta demands to say we should stop recording sex on birth certificates. If we don't do that, how do we even know that these terrible things are happening and how do we change them? So as a woman who sees the effect of sexism in the world happening all the time, this is a particularly stark example. And I think it, it would be horrific if we didn't record these facts and try and do something about them. Another legal place where sex is recorded is in census returns and an awful lot of the information we have about discrepancies between male and females female treatment in countries comes from censuses so we can know if you look at censuses in india we can know that more girls are dying young than boys are and it's extrapolated from from those census records that you know girls are not given the same access to medical treatment as boys are because they're not worth saving really we won't know that girls are being let die if we don't keep a legal record of sex finally in in just in uk law so thankfully we're not as affected by these kinds of issues of sex selective abortion so on but in in uk law we have um since 2010 we have our equality act that has nine protected characteristics age, disability, gender reassignment, marriage and civil partnership, pregnancy and maternity, race, religion or belief, sex and sexual orientation. If sex is no longer legally recognised, we lose a protected characteristic. And, and what does having a protected characteristic mean? It means that if you're turned down for a job and you can show that, that the people who are always getting jobs in this place are always the men and you're a woman, you can say, look, you've discriminated against me on the grounds of sex. If we lose sex as a legal characteristic, then how can we protect it? So even if the spaces issue, as I, as I said at the beginning, even if the spaces issue was, was a non-issue at all, I don't think it is a non-issue. I think there are cases where we do need to be able to say, okay, in this particular case, this has to be a female-only space. But even if it was a, a non-issue, I don't think it would be in the interests of female people to stand by and let sex be got rid of as a politically relevant category to not be legally recorded. Because we just don't know if discrimination is, is occurring if we're not recording the <laughs> recording the information right if we don't have the statistics how do we know there's a gender so we could talk about the gender pay gap it's, it's really as currently recorded it's a sex pay gap right it's um pay gap between male, males and females if we don't have records of sex anymore how do we know that there is one and how do we do anything about it then no i mean i think uh, before we get to katarina on that i think there, there may be some people who think that you know everything goes one way with this that you know it's only bad things can happen of change and only bad things can happen to the status quo. And I, I assume that the sensible view you take is that there are pros and cons and there are trade-offs with whichever way you go on this. And so um, it's not a case of having to sort of disprove that every harmful 
effect that someone claims isn't going to happen. I presume the argument is that one takes the view that on balance, because I mean, Mary, you'd accept, I guess, that there will be certain harms, I think you said at the beginning, to trans people if you if you don't go the whole way towards the recognition they want. But presumably, Katerina, you take the view that the risk, the benefits and gains are not in the same balance. So I, I would say that uh, I've not completely decided on this, right? I don't, and I think it's an extremely difficult question because you would have to find ways to quantify the harms on each side, and right, and of course that would involve a lot of empirical research. And I don't think that I, as a philosopher, am equipped to actually be have a very worked out, you know, solid position on this. I do think that the arguments uh, that Mary just uh, uh, presented, in particular. Uh, the, the selective abortion of girls is a very serious problem, of course, and I think that's definitely something we want to continue keeping track of, right? And then the question becomes, like, are there ways in which we could kind of keep track of that while at the same time somehow minimizing the potential uh, costs and harms that, you know, still maintaining a very kind of very robust notion of sex, legally speaking? Maybe we could still, you know improve on the trade-off and still kind of address the questions that that uh, that Mary was uh, raising while at the same time minimizing the potential harms for, say, trans people who feel that in this way their rights are not being properly uh, respected and enforced. So I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that I, I can really kind of come out clearly, well, this, I'm sure this is the best position. No, and I think it's very good that we have these conversations and that we can actually be clear on what exactly is at stake, right? And that's why after having talked quite a bit about metaphysics and biology, et cetera, we've moved to the level where I think the discussion really should be had. But then the question becomes, you know, how tractable are these questions going to be? How do you measure the trade-offs and the the harms and the, right? So I'm just saying, I mean, personally, as a female, right, as, as Mary would say, although I don't describe myself this way typically, I, I don't really uh, have any qualms with personal, right, in the way you described that you feel almost like personally uh, uh, affected by this, uh, this proposal of, you know, getting rid of sex categories completely. I don't have this response. And I do have, as I described, I do have a similar response uh, when somebody saying something that I think is completely insensitive about, say, sexual abuse. So, so I, that's kind of how I would, I guess, relate to this response. I don't have this response personally, but again, this is just, you know, our experiences should not be the basis for, for policymaking completely. What I do want to point out, you know, related to the, what you were describing as people who feel uncomfortable in trans-inclusive uh, spaces for women, I think, you know, any changes will always entail some people feeling, feeling uncomfortable. They'll always be pushed back, right? So if you think about same-sex marriage, right, this was also a thing that when it was first instituted here in the Netherlands, by the way, uh, um, the minority, it was a position that the minority of the population favored. And yes, it was, you know, it was installed because it was a way to enforce a principle in the constitution that everybody should be treated equally. And as time went by, now it's the most normal thing in the world here, right? So, I mean, that's not for, with some exceptions, of course, nobody bats an eye. You can, you know, so changes, right? So both kind of uh, conceptual as well as practical changes. Of course, some people feel uncomfortable, and of course, there will be some pushback. That in and of itself is not a reason, I think, to completely exclude these changes from being implemented, right? But I don't. I still think that there's, by and large, I don't think there is as much of a conflict as as Mary describes. 
But I do ag ag agree that some residual conflict might well remain because ultimately I'm a Foucaultian also. And I think, you know, social, social conflict is, right, conflict is inevitable, right? I, I hold a tragic view of the human condition. So I don't think, you know, oh, we should all be friends and hold hands and everything's going to be fine. I think that's naive as well as a position. But I do think that the, the so-called gender critical side overestimates the disadvantages of and or overestimates the negative impact that uh, enforcing trans rights more more clearly would have. But you know that's a very difficult question to you know how with which methodology we would even address this question. But that's my general sense is that it's ultimately not really not nearly as bad as they describe it and it could represent a tremendous improvement for the lives of trans people so that's how you know that's at least how i see it at this yeah. point well, you said you're Foucaultian, but uh, i mean stuart hampshire actually his last book was called justice is conflict which i thought was a, a very good title explaining you know that we're going to have these tensions exactly. but i mean but going back to this, the gender critical position mary i mean isn't there an argument here that what one's got to look at, you know, is, is what are people putting, making salient and what are people prioritising? And you, you've raised important issues, but why isn't the response to that to say, OK, these would be potential problems. How can we ameliorate them rather than these are the potential problems and these are, and these are the reasons to push back? I mean, because, for example, the data around selective abortion, for example, well, one could make it a law that um, every birth certificate notes the... Um, a gender assigned at birth or sex assigned at birth, which does not bind the, the gender of that child as it grows older, but is there for the record. It's things like this, which is, would probably, I don't know, would probably be acceptable to, to a lot of people. Uh, isn't there just a lot more room to kind of find solutions to these problems rather than saying the solution to the problem is basically let's stick with the status quo? I, I wouldn't want to say that my solution is stick with the status quo. I think we do need to, to think carefully about about how we record social facts, right, and and, and what gets legal status and so on. But I, I think even making making that move and saying, okay, well, let's let's start and think about how how we might creatively solve these problems about statistics gathering or about uh, about you know how do, how do we weigh up the interests of women in prison. Uh, who don't want to be sexually assaulted with uh, people who want to self-identify into female prisons and so on. But, yeah, we, we, we can go and have those conversations, but they are only conversations that can have that we can have once we honestly say there's two things going on here. There's gender identity and there's sex. There's, there's differences and sometimes, sometimes they'll, they'll clash with each other. So we've got in a, a situation where I think on the um, trans-inclusive side people have been pushing for saying well all there is is gender identity and that needs to take that needs to be to the fore and whenever we say women we mean the gender identity notion and if you say that then it doesn't even make sense to say oh well should a self-identified trans woman be included in a woman's space well a woman just includes self-identified trans women you can't even have the conversation which is exactly what some people want, right? That the conversation shouldn't want. even have. Yeah, yeah. On on the other side, you have women reacting to that and saying, "No, no, no, woman just says adult, human, female." And um, when we say women, we mean that. And then you can't again. You can't have a conversation of, "Well, is there a space here where it's okay to be inclusive?" Where, when does it matter to say, "Okay, no, here we really need 
female only. You can't, on either side, if, if you just say sex is all that matters or gender identity is all that matters, that stops you being able to have these conversations. So that's why I, I push for this idea. We need to recognize there's two things going on here and we need to be able to say in which context might it matter? Might, might, might female people have a claim on this, this should be female only? I keep coming back to the 2010 Equality Act. It's a really excellent piece of law, I think, um, in the UK. And as well as protecting all these characteristics against discrimination, it also lays down circumstances where you can discriminate. So you can say, but by and large, you shouldn't dis- discriminate on grounds of sex, right? So you should, anything that males can do, females can do, and vice versa. But you can discriminate. You can say, this space is a female-only space where it can be shown that this is a proportionate means to a legitimate end. So if you can show there's some legitimate, um, you know, maybe you've got uh, female rape victims and they want a support group where they're just talking with other females who have shared experience. You can say, okay, well, making this group a female-only group is proportionate for the legitimate end of ameliorating the harm that these these women have suffered. Because you have to make this proportionate claim, you can, you can say, okay, well, that doesn't mean that in all cases things can be female only right it doesn't mean in every single case you can you can say this space is female only you have to you have to show why this is why there's a legitimate end served by this and and how it's served by making it a female only space i think this is an excellent piece of law and i think i would much rather the conversation happened on a kind of case by case basis with this and saying well why are we restricting to one sex here What's the end that's served by doing this? Is this a proportionate end? How does is this is this proportionate? Bearing in mind that some people, as I've said, will be harmed by their exclusion from this. I think this is a, a, an excellent piece of law for going about these individual discussions, and it's uh, they're just discussions we can't have if there's only sex or only gender identity, right? If if that's all that we mean by by women. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to make some concluding remarks, actually. So. <laughs> They respond also to, to Mary's point. So, I mean, on the one hand, of course, what you have is a, it's going to be a very kind of contextual story of like, in, you know, on a case by case basis, you know, what's what would be the appropriate policy here and there. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, sympathetic to this general idea, but I also think there is a unifying principle behind also the idea of trans inclusivity, which is the thought that ultimately Feminism is about fighting against the patriarchy and against misogyny. And a number of philosophers have been making the point, and again, I think in a rather compelling way, that what unifies right, the, the experiences of uh, cis women and trans women, and also of gay men, and also of many non-gender conforming people, it's the fact that it's actually the, the oppression that all these people, I include myself as a woman, I guess, although in many senses I'm a very privileged, but in this respect, uh, I ha- I'm also uh, on the recipient of oppression. It's that we're all victims of patriarchy and of misogyny. And so if you still want to treat the problem, you know, the, the real problem in a systematic way, and, and this is really the problem that underlies all the phenomenon that Mary was also discussing, then you really want to, what's going on is, Whoever doesn't conform to the supposedly uh, superior individuals in a society, uh, abled white cis men, everybody, everyone who doesn't fit the usual descriptions of gender categories, we all have to be punished. Right? We're all punished for for you know stepping out of line. And that, in that sense, there is a unifying principle there, right? In that sense, you might say that 
Well, actually, trans women and cis women are victims of the same kind of oppression. And in that sense, it makes sense, philosophically speaking, right? So not, not anymore at the level of policies and, and costs and benefits, et cetera, et cetera. But philosophically speaking, it does make sense to think about all these phenomena under the same umbrella and then fight patriarchy and misogyny of, you know, in a unified way. So that's, I think that could be perhaps my concluding remarks. Yeah, and I'd, I'd, I'd like to endorse at least some of that. And, and this is the big tragedy with the way this debate has gone on is that we should be natural allies. We're all harmed by enforcement of gender norms. We're all harmed by misogyny, by patriarchy, and we should be natural allies in fighting that instead because we've got into a position where there, there seems to be only one thing that can be legally recognized. It's either sex or gender identity. We're fighting over which of these gets legal recognition rather than saying, let's recognize both and <laughs> work together uh, to fight against the real enemy, which is, which is patriarchy, absolutely. So so it's been a very clever, it almost feels like it's it's been engineered this way, right, to just make us be at each other's throats uh, to say, Let's make it such that there, there's only one thing that we can have legal Divide recognition for. Divide and conquer, right? Divide and conquer. We'll just, we'll just give you this one little bit of protected ground to, to fight over, and it, it's either going to be sex or it's going to be gender identity. And, and, and of course we're going to fight over that, right? Uh, and, and we shouldn't. We, we do need to find a way to, to go get beyond that. Catherine, what would you – I mean, a lot of gender-critical feminists, it seems it's very obvious that – they are have really raised the hackles of a lot of people on the trans inclusive side, and 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 to the extent that, as I as I said right at the beginning, a lot of people won't even talk to them. So the idea that we're going to make common cause seems at the moment a long way off. What do you think gender critical feminists could do to persuade trans inclusive um, thinkers or activists that they are on the same side? Well, I don't know about persuading, right? Because that's okay. already setting the bar very high. But I do think that, I mean, that comes from my general research on, on argumentation and debates. I mean, the one thing that's really needed is a sense of mutual respect, a sense of really truly listening to each other, right? Uh, extending the courtesy of attention. And, and so, and that is, uh, so which might at this point, things have may gotten so sour that it might be too late for that. I hope not. But in any case, the whole point is really that, uh, you know, it's really a lot about truly listening. But I do think that, that like, given personal experiences and a lot of hurt that people have incurred, like personal hurt, because, again, uh, for me, it's easy to say I'm not a trans person. I don't have this very, you know, these daily different uh, difficult experiences. So it's, I guess, much easier for me to be here talking to Mary uh, then it would be for somebody who actually feels like personally, you know, the effects of, of these policy decisions. So I, I, on the one hand, I think it's very hard to ask of people, you know, who have suffered so much. Oh, you know, why don't you just listen to the other side and I'll just be open to that. I think that's a big, big ask in many, in many uh, circumstances. But on the other hand, I feel like at least sir, I'm in a position to do this because I don't have these very painful experiences. So I hope personally that, you know, that we can at least try to build bridges in this way, but I don't feel it's fair to ask that everyone, in particular people who have a personal stake in these debates, that they should all be open to talking and holding hands and, well, let's all, so I mean, this idea that, well, you know, if we just sit down and respect each other and talk, 
nicely and you know the good arguments will will prevail and it's all going to be fine i don't believe in that at all i don't i think this is extremely naive so but i do think that you know insofar as possible for those of us who feel they have the the emotional availability right to 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 listen and talk and i think that's the case for mary and me here then it's a good thing that we're doing it and so and then hopefully you know hopefully there'll be some sort of positive effect from that but i don't think that it's reasonable to expect from people who have been extremely hurt in these debates to just say, well, you know, why don't we just get pass over it and just listen to each other and respect each other? Because, but ultimately that's what would be necessary to do anyway, to really listen to each other in the charity. And I do wonder whether the professional sort of conventions of philosophy don't help with this because um, in every other debate, you know, what you do is you, you take something you disagree with and you just tear them down as, as as effectively as you can, and there's not kind of there's not a style of interaction with. with but there's another thing that we're also trained to do as philosophers, and it's exactly what Mary and I have been doing over the years: is try to find where there is agreement, try to find the points where it seems like we're disagreeing so much. Okay, let's just like what are your basic assumptions there, and what are you know of both sides, and then you realize, hey, actually, we at least Mary and I. There's quite a lot of agreement. There's quite a lot that we can agree on. And on the basis of that, we can move on and talk about the specific disagreements that we have. This is also something we're trained to do as philosophers. So I would encourage people to do exactly that. You know, try to kind of lo locate the, the points of commonalities so that you, the discussion can be localized to the real points of disagreement. Um, Mary, what do you think would make it possible for you in the future to share a, a table or a stage? I think, in a way, it doesn't really matter what it's going to take for, to get me to talk to someone because ultimately what we're talking about is legal changes and uh, changes to the law and, f and for legal changes to happen people have to be brought to agreement on them so on my side in the UK we had this consultation over the change to self-ID and, and, and lots of people on my side have been making the case that we didn't think that the changes were, were happening in the right kind of, kind of way that law seems to have been shelved now and I, th I think if something that's closer to what trans activists are, are looking for is is going to be brought forward there will have to be conversations about how how to balance these difficulties so in a way <laughs> the ball's in their court now to say okay well let's let's try and come up with a proposal that addresses some of these concerns that have been raised but I'm, I'm happy to talk to anyone Glad, glad to hear it worked. But, but not everyone's going to listen to me, so. Absolutely. Well, listen, I mean, we, we've, we've talked a lot and we've covered a lot, but there's a lot we haven't been able to talk about, of course, a lot a lot more to say. Like you, I just want more such conversations <laughs> to happen. It's not going to be a resolved in one, and we need other people to be doing talking apart from um, three uh, cisgender people as have done so today. But I do, I do appreciate I think I think it's been really helpful in trying to sort of at least get us some understanding of why this is so difficult and how perhaps the divisions are, needn't be as, as stark as they sometimes presented. There is common ground, there is common cause. And I hope this is uh, well, a small part of a process and go a lot further. So thank you very much, Catalina Dotil-Nervais and Mary Lane. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find links to the other podcasts in this series and much more at my website, julianbergini.com. If you'd like to support my work and make more advert-free podcasts like this possible, please consider becoming a supporter, which gives you exclusive or early access to a wide range of content. Full details are on the website. 
So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.